0: Welcome to Maine's Oyster Aquaculture Podcast. My name is Bill Pernod. Here we have weekly conversations with oyster farmers, many who are marine biologists, ninth-generation fishermen, or former hedge fund guys, but all are driven by the desire to work on the water and to fight the impact of climate change. These are global stories just told locally. Maine faces some big challenges. The Gulf of Maine is the second fastest warming body of water on the planet. But these folks have ideas and solutions driven by science and innovation. These entrepreneurs are a resilient, gritty group. Oyster aquaculture cleans water, helps coastal communities, preserves Maine's working waterfront just as it contributes to Maine's economy, the food scene, and tourism. These are stories told with humor and optimism about the best oysters in the world. Eric Aransky grew up in Freeport, Maine. He spent a lot of time on Casco Bay. and When he was 21, he apprenticed with Scottish master cabinetmaker James Bowie for furniture making in Northern California. And uh, in 2007, at 23, Eric moved back to Maine and started his first business, all while spending as much time as he could on the water. He focused on woodworking, including furniture and building, for about seven years. But he found he missed working on the water. So in 2017, he formed Maine Ocean Farms with his two partners, Willie Leathers and Tom Klandensky. Today, we're going to hear from Eric. This recording, due to some technical and time issues, was recorded in two different locations and two different times. That's why there's a different sound quality in the second half. Eric... Thank you so much for joining us today, and let me begin by asking you a question. What made you and the original founders come to believe that forming Maine Ocean Farms was a great idea?
1: The original idea for Maine Ocean Farms came in probably November, December of 2016 when the three of us were standing around in the kitchen discussing a newspaper article or a story we'd heard about, I believe, a court case ruling regarding the intertidal zone Under an old Massachusetts statute, when Maine was part of Massachusetts, which preserves public access to that intertidal zone for fishing, fowling, and navigation, and that the court had ruled that harvesting of wild seaweed or macroalgae kelp does not constitute fishing, fowling, or navigation, and therefore is uh, owned by the riparian landowners. That, paired with the increase in demand for kelp and other seaweed, prompted us to think maybe this is a way we can continue to work on the water, do it without going halfway around the world for 90 to 100 days at a time. The three of us met working uh, at sea, and we're looking for a way to continue to do
0: that close to home. Eric, could you give a brief summary of how things have gone for Maine Ocean Farms since you guys started it?
1: Uh, Yeah, the business was initially founded, or officially founded, in April of 2017, where we made our first site selection, incorporated the business, ordered our first seed, and started building our first gear. First Oysters went in in July of 17, I believe. In that period, we have had some tough lessons, primarily in the, the gear building, and one of the pieces of advice I got from a veteran oyster farmer was all of the lessons they've learned, but that your lease, your site, your location is going to teach you more than anything else, and that it's amazing how moving just a quarter mile, a half mile, a mile in the same body of water can change the lessons that you'll learn and the methods that you need to use. And that holds true. We still are learning, and luckily we've got some of the big lessons out of the way to get into our, our system and our protocol up front in the first year or two when we had a small number of oysters and a small amount of gear and it was easy to adapt and change everything over and find better solutions as we grow. Overall, things have gone really well. Each year that we've been to market, this was our second full year with oysters to market, and our third year to market, uh, we sold everything that we intended to sell. This last year in 2020, in spite of the, the incredible volatility from week to week and month to month with regard to life as well as oyster sales, we did manage to sell and hit our initial target numbers for 2020 pre-pandemic. The majority of that happened in the months of September and October, where we, I think, had five or six weeks in a row of our highest sales num- weekly sales numbers ever, uh, each week being outpacing the last and in those two months, we sold more oysters than we sold. We sold more than 50% of the oysters we sold in 2020 in those two months. Also, it was more oysters in those two months than we sold in all of 2019. When the pandemic hit and the restaurants got closed, we basically scrapped all of our projections and plans and put all sales figures or income from oyster sales at zero and made a plan to, to get through the year from there. Figured anything we sold on top of that was a bonus, and then. As the restaurants reopened, everything picked up, and then it went just absolutely nuts for a little while, and then it tapered off again in the fall. So overall, the year went as planned, in spite of being highly volatile.
0: Didn't you, uh, in your original business plan, set out to grow uh, seaweed and kelp? Uh, how, did, how did it come come to be that you grew oysters? For seaweed was our initial sort of interest, but
1: we applied for an aquaculture economic development program that was put together by the Island Institute and that we were in in 2017 and as part of that at the first meeting we got a big binder with economic studies sort of how to grow guides for kelp mussels and oysters and after reading through all of that and the sort of business plans and markets capital cost versus return information made the decision that oysters were the place that made the most sense for us to start a viable business. The, the balance of capital, upfront capital required to get into it, and the return on the product. And that we may end up still doing some more stuff with kelp and seaweed in the future or incorporating it into multi trophic aquaculture, but that to start, we need to build a viable business and then we can expand into other fields of interest. And so we went around and talked to the chefs and oyster connoisseurs and folks that we know and tried to really get an idea for if you could create an oyster that was your ideal oyster to sell or serve at your restaurant or to eat, what would it look like? What would it taste like? What would it be? And after collecting all that information and sort of simmering it, reducing it down we came away with we want a product that looks different that is very clean meaning there's not a lot of work to be done at the restaurant and also not a lot of scrubbing we just decided to develop a process that would create an oyster so something that was clean can very consistent in quality and aesthetic And something that was going to have its own place in the market, so we decided to create what we call our wet smack oyster, which was intended to find a foothold in petite oyster market. So that's our wet smacks are from two and a quarter to two and three quarter inches typically, and those oysters are still two to three years of age. And had we not handled them in our process and done nothing to them and let them grow naturally on the bottom, they might be three or four inches, uh, given the water temperatures on our site. Uh, But because Of our process, we end up with this very unique shape, a very thick shell, which makes them easy to shuck, a deep cup, and a very firm and plump oyster inside. And that's a combination of our site and the site's exposure to weather, the type of gear we use, and some of our proprietary equipment and processes that we
0: use to handle and grow those out. Yeah, can you uh, tell me a little bit about the wet smack oyster and uh, the shape the unique shape of, of the shell.
1: The Wet Smack Oyster was conceived, create the ideal oyster for what a restaurateur, uh, oyster bar, oyster connoisseur is looking for, from what we gathered and then how we interpreted that. Yeah, So very thick shell, clean shell, very consistent, uh, easy to shuck, with a name that was going to stand out, that had historical relevance to the space and the place that we grow and our interest in the history and particularly the maritime history of this place so we came up with the criteria and then we decided to determine what process needed to happen to do that and the first couple years was trial and error experiments inferring collecting data seeing how we did
0: what's the origin of the name wet smack uh
1: with our interest in uh the historical aspects and the maritime history of the area we were looking for a name that connected our oysters to the heritage and this maritime lineage of the place that we live and that we love and that we work. And so I was reading some historical books. I got this name from was called The Islands of Casco Bay, Where America Really Began. And there was a section about the beginning of the commercial lobster industry back in the 1830s. Among other folks in Maine from Penobscot Bay and Swan's Island, a man named Elijah Oaks, began using wet smacks to sail live Maine lobster from Harpswell down to Boston and New York City to sell. And a wet smack was a sailing vessel where the fish hold the center... The midship's compartment in that ship, or the fish hold, had holes drilled in it below the waterline so that it could be filled with live seafood and that fresh seawater would circulate through that fish hold while the vessel was transiting to the the port to sell it. Back in the 1830s, lobsters were incredibly abundant and there wasn't an actual fishery for them. People were mostly just getting them out of the rocks and the seaweed in the shallows and waiting around for them. But as this market for the This Maine lobster started to develop from the transportation of these wet smacks. Folks started building pens in the shallow waters, or sort of maybe what you would now call a lobster pound, collecting the lobsters so that when the wet smack came back up to to fill its hold, you didn't have to go catch them all. They were already in a little pen. And then that evolved into traps, buoys, and the trawls that we see commercial lobstermen using now. Maine's lobster industry is really a quintessential piece of what... Maine is known for and the largest single species fishery by value in the country. If I'm not mistaken, we thought that that would be a nice story and it's certainly not a name that's easy to forget
0: (laughs) and it seemed to fit. So let me ask you uh, another question regarding wet smacks. Wet smacks were picked uh, along with the winter points and and glidden oysters to uh, uh, by Eventide to go to the James Beards Awards. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, when we we brought samples down and the owners down there, Andrew Taylor was the one who actually I met that day and he took some of the samples and ate a bunch and took some down to the restaurant to share with his counterparts. And then a couple of days later, we, we set up a weekly delivery and negotiated all that. And then he asked if we would uh, discount some oysters for the stipend they had to provide food for the awards dinner, which they had won the award uh, themselves and had been asked to come back and cater part of the awards dinner and chose those three main oysters to represent what they thought were the best oysters they had. That was quite an honor and a bit shocking and also a bit of a realization that maybe all of the wonderful things our friends and family were telling us about our oysters weren't just hot air. And that maybe we actually had successfully created this unique product that we'd set out to to try and create.
0: Great. So uh, just to kind of uh, switch gears here a little bit, could you could you tell me a little bit about? I know you guys are working on on a compostable oyster bag. How are we yours? are. The bag itself
1: is going to be sold under the name Ocean Harvest Bag, and it was something that spawned off us. Harvesting and delivering oysters in these plastic mesh bags or onion bags or sort of bait bag type material that everyone is using, feeling like this just doesn't make sense. We're growing these shellfish that are cleaning the water, pulling other things like nitrogen out of the water as well as the particulates. We're doing it in a very responsible way. We're improving the ecology of the area that we're working in. And yet we're putting these oysters in a plastic mesh bag that may only stay in for, you know, six to 12 hours before the restaurants dump them out and wash them. After many months, almost a year of reaching out to, you know, suppliers and distributors of all sorts of fishing and gear and equipment and getting samples of bioplastics and cotton ones and this and that and the other, we found nothing that fit what we were looking for, or even close really. Uh, So we found a manufacturer who thought that, our continued insistent requests on them making something with the same material that they were already working with, but that was specifically designed for seafood and shellfish caught the interest of the head of sales at this manufacturer who then reached out and took over communications with me, said, we don't do that, but it has always been part of our business plan as we grow to do customized products. And this is in whole sector and industry that we'd never even considered. Uh, so yeah, let's develop a product that works for you. And then actually kind of as a result of the major shift in our operational plans, as a result of the pandemic, we'd found ourselves with the bandwidth mentally and the time this last spring to say, you know what, this could be more than something that we just create for ourselves to package oysters. in, And it could actually have a a pretty impressive impact on the whole shellfish industry by eliminating all that plastic. Like I think in two thousand. 17, roughly 36 million pounds of oysters were sold in the U.S., and I can guarantee almost all those were in a plastic bag. Ties in a little personally with us because we all met working uh, for sail training and for Ocean Classroom and then at Sea Education Association, which has one of the largest data sets on microplastics in the Atlantic of anyone in the world seeing all that plastic just break down into smaller pieces of plastic and end up in all of the organisms of the ocean it's like, there's just got to be something better. So, the ocean harvest bag is made out of 100% cellulose, which is fiber, can become from anything with cellulose, but this is coming from beech trees specifically. So, uh, sustainably harvested and forested uh, beech trees, which also repropagate themselves from their own root system. And then it's turned into a fiber, which is spun into a yarn, which is made into a net which not only is biodegradable, truly biodegradable, but can actually go in your compost pile and breaks down in about, you know, 60 to 90 days to dirt and goes back into the cycle as wow. do the oyster shells. If they end up back in the ocean. That's it's awesome. pretty, we're, we're very excited about it. And it yeah. seems to be uh, eventide big tree foods and Sopo seafood, even though we're not actually trying to sell any of this stuff yet, they've been using it for their own to go products and even Tide is selling oysters to go. So post shipping all their shellfish across the country and direct orders in it already Um, and great feedback. So they've been doing that for the last couple months and they've been keeping things quiet and we haven't shared all the details but they've been using the first product which is uh, intended really for that, for smaller quantities, low cost. It's only slightly more expensive than the plastic like the cost to bag a hundred oysters, it's like, I don't know, I think it's like 10, 12 cents more for a hundred oysters than the right. plastic bags we were using. So, hold it. so
0: Sopo, when you order oysters out of Sopo, yeah. they will ship the oysters in these bags. The oysters will be bagged up in, a, in the ocean harvest
1: bag. Yeah, that's what the oysters and the mussels and so are. What question is the question that I'm not asking that I need to be asking? sort of my first place my mind goes to is sort of what are the the challenges and the things that we face currently in this place which I have to say in spite of everything that has happened in this last year in the short term week to week and month to month our oyster farm sales and everything was completely unpredictable like you had no we had no idea but Overall, throughout the year, we did hit our sales targets prior to the pandemic happening. When that happened, we produced everything to zero in our sheets Mm -hmm. and then said anything we can sell will be a bonus from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we survive if we don't sell any oysters? We did sell everything we wanted to. I think the two biggest issues as an industry are going to be public understanding and education of what is aquaculture and how does it interact with them and the spaces that we share the distinction between different types of aquaculture and how they interact with those places and those other stakeholders, uh, be they fishermen or landowners or anybody recreating. And the other is how do we balance the massive potential of aquaculture, particularly in the state of Maine, to grow protein with no food inputs uh, for the organisms being grown, at least with shellfish and seaweed that are actually having a positive impact on the place and have the potential to increase our ability to produce renewable protein locally and deal with our food shortage and massive... I mean, we import like 86% of our seafood roughly, and we have the largest exclusive economic zone in the world, right, uh, out to 200 nautical mile line. And the state of Maine is the potential to grow some of the highest quality and the most shoreline of any state in the country. And how do we balance all of that economic potential for the state as traditional fisheries change, coastal communities and that infrastructure changes with all the needs of the other people there. And how do you balance that with the, the regulatory side, which initially, especially when we first started, we were sort of at the beginning of that second, that new wave of aquaculture, which I think when we applied for our first LPAs, there was only 170 or something in the state. And Now, I don't know what it is, but like a year and a half ago, it was like 500, 600 something. Not just oysters, just LPAs. So there's a lot. When we started, the entire aquaculture lease area in the state of Maine was like half the size of Rockland Harbor or something like that. And I don't know square footage wise what it is now, but it's it's a lot. And the economic studies that the state did projected that it would increase sixfold in about a 10-year period. And it seems to be on that trajectory. And maybe even that was conservative.
0: So so what do you see as the biggest
1: challenge? Right now our challenges are making sure that folks really understand what it is we're doing and what the implications are to them and how positive all these positive things as opposed to just what else all that stuff out there and how to balance all of those needs and uses as along with how does the state keep up with the regulations in a way that allows businesses to be viable at the same time not letting it. Get away from them to a point where it's sort of a land grab gold rush. Like our other businesses, which are marine services installing moorings and providing some of that insight and knowledge to other people and the harvest bag, we really see these opportunities of how do we influence the industry in a way that's positive. So let's get rid of some of this plastic waste. Let's share some of the knowledge we have from a commercial marine background of mooring systems with people. And so we provided drawings that are. Uh, intended to reach people at the point where they're beginning something, share that knowledge with them. And also by having mooring systems that are appropriately sized and and engineered, it helps the general public image of aquaculture by not having sites that are really confusing to look at or drifting off station and Mm. getting tangled up and stuff. So we're really just looking for ways to bring the whole industry up and help those small operators who don't have the big bucks and the big teams behind them to get the information they need to do it right. Because in our minds, having small coastal communities and family operations and small operations is really where this benefit to the state of Maine comes from, both economically by keeping the money that's being made in state, in families, not in some big conglomerated Aquaculture Corporation, but also in creating a lot of jobs for people like us who don't fit in the office. We don't belong there. We don't really know what to do. I do sit behind my desk about a day a week, but I don't like it. Right. And so there's a whole new generation of people coming up who maybe there isn't as much opportunity in a traditional fishery or as a stern man on a lobster boat as there was, who could now learn some skills and have the opportunity to start an oyster farm or mussel farm or seaweed farm and stay in Maine and have a way of earning a living
0: doing so. If you like stories like this, visit maineoysterbook.com for more conversations with the people who have and are creating the story of Maine oyster aquaculture. And you can pre-order the new book from Perna Content, Maine Oysters, Stories of Resilience and Innovation. This book is filled with wonderful insights from very interesting people, and it's filled with stunning photography, from some of Maine's best photographers. See you next week, and thanks for listening.